one of the ones that I always like to talk about um, when people say like, are we going to do four week cycles or six? Why not two? And like, you know, agile is smaller cycles. And I said, you know, to me, well, why? why? Why are cycle times small? And so we start talking about this whole concept of the bets that you're taking, right? So it used to be in the waterfall world, you would take a huge bet. It was a six month, a one year risk, right? And and we talked about it a little earlier, right? Where, you know, in the software world, right? Uh, redoing something is somewhat cheap, um, much cheaper than the manufacturing world. And so you wanna take smaller bets, right? And so, you know, and that was what Agile was about. You take smaller bets and you iterate over these bets. And, but I think in like in a lot of industry, just, just because something is good, more of it doesn't mean it's constantly getting linearly better. Right. Um, I think at some point we went down to like, oh, well, from six months to four week sprints to two week sprints, some companies are doing one week sprints. Right. Is they've, they've forgotten about the fact that we're taking a bet. Right. And a bet is really where we're talking about some feature or some problem that we're solving and we're trying to solve that in an iterative way. And they just kind of broke work down into tasks devoid of its context, right? Yeah. And so now you can do it in these two-week cycles, right? Um, but you're completing a lot of work in two weeks, but rarely are you actually solving a problem. Like two weeks is, in most cases, unless you're fixing a bug or doing some very small feature, it's just not enough time. Welcome to Shapers and Builders, the show about better ways to deliver great software products. Today I'm speaking with Ilya Sterin, VP of Engineering at Metadata, a clinical trial company from the US with around 3,000 employees. This conversation is part of a series about companies that use ShapeUp, a delivery framework originally created at Basecamp. If you've never heard of ShapeUp, check the show notes for a link to the video Shaping in a Nutshell by Ryan Singer former head of strategy at Basecamp and author of the book Shape Up, Stop Running in Circles and Ship Work That Matters. In our conversation, Ilya explains his approach to introducing Shape Up at scale. We go deep on the core conceptual pillars behind Shape Up, like working iteratively, setting a big enough yet small enough batch size and fixed time variable scope. Instead of a dogmatic book-in-hand approach, Ilya chose to introduce ShapeUp to his teams by reasoning from the principles of software engineering and avoiding to put a label on this new way of working as much as possible. If you feel like ShapeUp might help your team improve but are afraid of being turned down, Ilya's experience might be just what you need to get started. So enjoy! Hey, Ilya, I'm so glad to finally get to speak with you about your experience with, with ShapeUp. Thanks, David. Yeah, um, I'm glad to be here and talking a little bit about it. I mean, I talked to a lot of people about ShapeUp and sort of how, um, uh, how I've been adopting it at various organizations and kind of, um, and, and, you know, ex extending my kind of, um, you know, learnings and thought process around it. But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Great to talk to you about. I, I see you very active in various LinkedIn and Twitter threads. Whenever some, someone is speaking <laughs> about ShapeUp, I see your name pop up. <laughs> Definitely yeah, I appreciate you of, sharing. Uh, mostly around um, jobs to be done and ShapeUp and so yeah. on. I see a lot of, obviously, I'm very passionate about it, but I also see a lot of um, 
folks that are also passionate about it, but I, I see a lot of misunderstanding about like what you know what jobs to be done is, what shape up is, and so I usually chime in mostly to like provide my opinion <laughs> around it. So yeah, that's. Uh... I mean, it's going to take us a bit off uh, of the track I had planned, but what what are the misconceptions that you maybe see with with ShapeUp specifically? Um, well, I think it's it's um, ShapeUp is less misconceptions because it's 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 quite new. I think people are mostly um, they. I think as an industry, we've gotten so deep into um, or. You, you go to most companies, right? And they've adopted some sort of methodology like Agile, uh, Scrum, or w whatever it is, right? Some modified version of Scrum. And I think that has become almost a um, an end to itself. Like a lot of people will have a hard time telling you, like, why are there certain rituals to Scrum? Like, why, you know, why is there estimation, right? Wh whether yeah. I like estimation or not, like... You know, why do we break work down into these bite-sized pieces and, and why do we iterate, right? Like, and I, I think most people that I've run into, and especially in large organizations, have a heart. They, they've just gotten into this ritual of this is what we do. This is how we develop the software. But we've forgotten these kind of first principles of like, well, why are we doing this versus something else, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, the, 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 our world used to be quite, I mean, not even that long ago, right? I don't know, two decades ago, maybe even a decade ago, right? Um, quiet waterfall, right? Um, and look, in some industries, waterfall development is the only way to go, right? Like, it's not yeah. like the, the, the devil that everybody kind of makes it out to be, right? Um, but we in, in software industry and some other industries have realized that, um, you know, um, we taking these big bets in an industry where, um, redoing something is not expensive, right? Like do, doing mm -hmm. agile development and vehicle manufacturing probably makes no sense, right? The risk of something failing and the cost of having to redo something is quite high, right? Um, in our yeah. in our business, it's 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 very low. Uh, the other thing is, um, and, and so we can benefit because it's so low. We can benefit from knowing, and and this happens by the way, and automotive, other manufacturing in other industries as well, where um, people have an idea, right? Uh, they collect a bunch of research, they build a product, and it just doesn't take off as much as, as they thought it was going to take off, right? Yeah. Um, and um, in our world, we can actually mitigate a lot of that, right? By iterating, right? So as opposed yeah. to going in and, and saying, we know exactly what the end result is and what we want it to be. Instead, we end up um, saying like, look, we have a hypothesis, what's the fastest way we can prove this and get mm -hmm. a signal from the market that we're moving in the right direction. And then we, you know, iterate over it, right? Like we make yeah. it a little better and a little better. And that's what iteration, that's another kind of a thing that I think people talk about agility, but they don't understand that agile is about iterating and iterating is really about getting signals from the market. It's not like you mm -hmm. can see a lot of companies doing agile like scrum and, and other methods and they're like yeah we are agile we're doing two-week sprints but they're yeah. not they have like a six-month plan and they're just doing two-week increments right but they're never really going to like releasing it you know gathering feedback figuring out whether they're moving in the right direction and so on so you know iteration is one of those you know kind of i talk about some of these principles right it's like do people really grasp what iterating is Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, we'll we'll get into how I kind of approach, you know, changing, 
you know, processes within organizations now, right? Yeah. Um, I started off as like, you know, we're, we're moving from, you know, from Scrum to Shape Up, and that didn't go very well, right? Because, mm-hmm. because again, it's like people don't see the benefit, like immediate, don't see the immediate benefit because they don't, they don't understand what's not really working here, right? They've just kind of been yeah. safe to this process. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I mean, as much as I just love getting into it, I think we have to take a, just a quick step back and, yeah. um, uh, and give a bit of context about your experience so far. I understand you, you've introduced shape up, uh, in one company before, and now you're doing it again, right? Do you want to just run us very quickly through your, uh, the arc of your career, what you've been doing so far and what your role is now? Sure. Absolutely. So I've been at it for probably. 23 years or something like that now. Um, first job was, I think, in 2000. Uh, I started off as a software engineer. Um, so most of the first half of my career was strictly software engineering. I got requirements from product and I built software and I loved it, right? Like I loved solving challenging technical problems. Um, it, it was about 2009 um, that me and a few other people started a company. Uh, so we started a company that started off, it was called Bazu uh, Sports. And then we kind of acquired and merged with a company called Chronotrack. So most people that are in that industry would know it as Chronotrack. Um, and um, in that process, um, I started off the first probably year and a half, me and another co-founder were software engineers. We built the product. We had, you know, we had another co-founder, had an idea. We built the product. And, you know, whether it's for the luck or for the, because it was a great idea, it took off, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, we were, we were expanding our customer base. We were growing pretty rapidly. And so, right, we got investment. And then we came to a point about probably about two years into it. Um, and again, as a software engineer in a company, you have the luxury of just like taking requirements and solving problems, right? But now... Yeah. I have more skin in the game, right? Not only do I care about solving technical problems, I actually want this to be financially rewarding for me, right? Yeah. Building a company. And we came about two years into it. um, We came to sort of a, I don't want to call it a halt, but the growth stalled, right? Yeah. And we tried a bunch of things. We had great ideas. We had like super smart, you know, co-founders and so on. And, um, but every time we would do something, it was a fantastic idea in a conference room, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and look, we were out there talking to customers and so on. But but at the end of the day, we would tr- we would go build something, and it and it wasn't really taken off as much as we thought. Right? Uh, and we needed to grow our revenues, we needed to grow our customer base, and so on. Um, and I got very lucky, um, probably a year before that, that I happened to. Um, run into a gentleman. Uh, this is actually a funny story. I was renting some office space and there was a gentleman next to me that rented some office space and I um, introduced myself and, and he introduced himself and I said, what do you do? And he said, I'm an inventor. <laughs> it was a really funny story. And, you know, we, we kind of just said our hellos, you know, and, and introduced ourselves and went about our right. Um, and I, I didn't see him probably for, you know, another year. Um uh, this gentleman uh, was Bob Mesta uh, of the Jobs to Be Done fame, right? And he was the, one of the inventors of the Jobs to Be Done theory. And uh, again, I had no idea what Jobs was. I had no idea who Bob was. Um, uh, I think he was also early in the process of, of kind of um, 
you know, uh, he, the jobs was already developed and tried and tested in the industry, but he was early in the process of kind of taking it wide in the industry and like, spreading yeah. it so, um, we happened to be at a, uh, friend's house. We had some mutual friends. Um, it was a new year's party. I still remember. Um, and, um, I'm not the most social person. So like we're at the party, people are talking about sports. I know nothing about sports. Um, so I happen to like, just look around the room and try to find a corner I can go sit in. And there's this gentleman sitting in the corner. Um, and I was like, wow, that's Bob. I think I remember him from a year ago. So I go sit down with Bob. Um, we just start chatting and I start telling him about, we were in the business. Ground Truck was in the business of timing and scoring marathons and triathlons. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we were, we had the hardware and the software to basically outfit the, the runner with the RFID chips and then time and score them and provide other services around. And at the time, I think we were thinking about some, some other tracking mechanisms for athletes that aren't RFID related. And, um, so I got to talk to Bob and Bob is one of the most interesting individuals I, I know. <laughs> and yeah. Bob says, Oh, sensors. Sure. So I'm working with the Harvard School on some sensor that they're developing, uh, the Harvard Medical Center or something like that, and the sensor that they're developing for tracking my brain activity. And he literally, I think he like pulls up his shirt. He has like three sensors on his chest. <laughs> he has a sensor on this, on this, like I think on his head, on this arm. And so we really get into like we nerd out for the rest of the night. Mm-hmm. And, and now I know who Bob is. Like I really like him and so on. And we exchange numbers. He has an office now at a different place. And again, we go about our way. And and a few months later, as I'm run as we're running this business, and I'm getting frustrated, somehow I get in touch with Bob. It's unclear to me whether I called him or whatever else. And Bob says, "Stop by my office." And uh, that was a very life changing experience for me. Um, I I, <laughs> I kind of had the 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 place in my brain to receive all that knowledge that he was giving. Where before, probably a year mm-hmm. ago. It just kind of went in one ear and came, went out the other because I was struggling with trying to grow a business at the time. I was struggling with understanding customer demand. And this is when he introduced yeah. jobs to be done to me and, and, and you know, my, my world changed since. So ever since then, I became kind of, you know, I, I talk about myself as kind of the intersection of product and engineering, right? Because we, mm-hmm. I went pretty deep on on jobs. We actually hired Bob to do jobs to be done for us. It was a very eye-opening experience for our business and so on. Um, and I could not see what I've kind of seen and experienced, right? I yeah. could no longer look at engineering uh, from just a solving a kind of a technical problem, uh, you know, perspective. From now on, I looked at engineering as like, I'm actually trying to solve a customer problem. And before I can do that, I need to understand the demand and I need to understand the constraints and the context and so on, right? Um, so, um, so either, either way, th- this is, that was my first kind of foray into, into product. And ever since then, you know, I've, I, um, uh, we, we sold the company in like 2013, I exited in 2015 and then went on to run uh, a product organization at a, um, kind of an automotive software company. So it wasn't a software company to begin with, but we came in and built a software organization to build, um, products for uh, automotive diagnostics um so mm-hmm. I, did, I did that for five years and then uh came to uh, metadata two years ago i had a couple of friends that worked here and the problem seemed um really interesting to me especially at the time when the pandemic was happening and metadata was helping a lot of these companies bring vaccines to market and so on so i was kind of you know energized by that and also i wanted to take a stab at um i worked 
the first part of my career, uh, my first job was at a big company. I worked at Ford Motor Company. Ever since then, I've been in the startup world, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I've always said, like, I'll never leave the startup world. Like, I, I love smaller companies. I love the impact that I can make and actually see at the same time and so on. Um, but I got to a point where um, somewhere tor- towards my uh, end of my tenure at um, this automotive diagnostic software company um, that I wanted to, I've kind of developed this system of product and engineering, right? Not, I personally didn't develop it, but I've kind of combined it out of what I've learned from Bob and from Ryan and from others and from my experience. And it worked fairly well. And I wanted to see how, how to kind of scale that at a larger organization. Mm-hmm. So I kind of took that challenge to say, I mean, first of all, I love the problems that metadata was solving, but at the same time, it was a much, much bigger organization that I was used to working for, you know, a decade and a half before that. And I just wanted to scale the system in a larger organization. Yeah, I'd love to understand. I, I, first of all, I, I absolutely love the story of you getting to know Bob Mesta. Uh, <laughs> that has to be one of the un- most unique uh, getting to know Bob stories that I've yeah. ever heard, for sure. Um, and I'd love to understand a bit more the, the size of, of companies that you've worked in, because I understand that at, um, at the automotive um, diagnostics company, you introduced ShapeUp, right, yeah. uh, in a way? And um, what what size was that? And now what size is metadata? Yeah, it was about, I can't remember the exact number, but it was about 40 people, I think, at the time. And we kind of varied off and on. But it was a small company. It was 40 people. We had three product teams at the time, right? Okay. Um, and we were doing some modified form of, like, our own custom form of Scrum. So it was a lot of, like, the Scrum, you know, uh, rigmarole. And, uh, and we were doing fairly well. We had a small team. Um, it was, um, uh, just small team of very, 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 very talented people. Um, and so we, we probably would have done well with any methodology to be honest with you. Yeah. Right? Um, but I wanted to do better and I wanted to do better as far as in terms of, um, we had a lot of, um, output, uh, that we put out every, every, every sprint and so on. I wanted to align it more with the outcomes that we were trying to get to. Right. And, um, and again, we were, look, we were doing good, but I saw a path to do better. And this is, this was also at the time when I, um, so I was very early on when Ryan, before he wrote the book, uh, Ryan did a session at the 37 signals or base camps offices in Chicago, kind Mm -hmm. of early session to kind of test the waters, right. To understand like, is his, you know, art, like he basically did like a, jobs to be done project before he wrote the book to understand the demand, like what, pe- what people are struggling with, right? What questions yeah. they have and so on. So I was in that session and everything he talked about was just so invigorating. Like, so it, it like just really, really resonated with me, right? Because it's all these things that we I've struggled with over the years, right? This intersection between product and engineering and how to do engineering better and focus more on outcomes and the trade-offs and so on. He just had fantastic language around, right? Mm. But language that I'm just not smart enough to develop myself, right? And so everything resonated, everything was coming, and everything could be linked back to almost like the first principles of like development, right? It wasn't just like, hey, this is the methodology we follow and it works great for us because Basecamp is successful. You guys should do it. Like we went, it, it kind of went back to like, you can link it back to like, well, why are we doing any of these things, right? Like, why does it help? 
you know, improve the flow, right, within mm -hmm. our organization? Why does it help us align better with the outcome? Why does it help us iterate better, right? Um, and so it just really resonated with me. Um, yeah, so we can get into how I kind of, you know, um, you know, first introduced yeah. them. But the company was about about 40 people at the time, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, l let's get into that. Yeah, how did you... Um... I mean, I actually, that's a reaction I get from a lot of people is <clears throat> it just, it sounded so right. It re everything resonated. And I personally, I can definitely relate. Yeah. Um, so you've, you went to the, was it the ship shape and ship workshop or something? I remember seeing that on Twitter. I don't know what it was called. Yeah, I don't remember the name now, but it was like this first introduction of, I, I know he was working on, on this with Bob. I mean, obviously Bob. Yeah involved at the time i don't remember what it was probably shape and ship or something like that so you're you're kind of uh, pumped from from that experience what did you do um so um people over process <laughs> <laughs> and uh, i'm not going to come back and even though like i had you know uh, like i ran the organization i could have came back and said hey guys starting tomorrow morning we're in you were using shape up obviously i'm not going to do that i had some really awesome people in my organization they were very smart i trusted them a lot so i wanted them it's sort of almost like bob never tried to push jobs to be done on me mm -hmm. until i had the actual struggle i didn't want to push this on folks until I can find them struggling at something and I can introduce that in that context, right? Mm -hmm. but the first thing I did was I actually, even though I oversaw the whole organization, I was very much hands-on with one of the products. Like I was almost a product manager there, right? Um, and um, so I, and it was a small, it was like three engineers at the time. And so I did in that context, I, you know, just kind of had a meeting, um, introduced Shape Up and said, look guys, here and we were struggling, like because I was intimately familiar with those struggles. I said, "Look, here are some of the things that we're struggling with. Um, we tend to, you know, finish a lot of user stories at the end of the cycle. Eventually, the, those equate to some sort of a feature that we release, and so on. I think we can. I mean, the product is doing good, but I think we can do so much better. And here's why. And I started introducing uh, those. And I also had really like experienced engineers on that team, so they were able to again kind of relate." to what I was talking about. And so I introduced these these concepts and I said, look, let's try to do this over the next cycle or two. We're gonna um, increase our cycles at the time. I, we went from two to four weeks. I wasn't willing to go six weeks just yet. I wanted yeah. to have like a smaller time frame. If, if, if we're doing something wrong, I didn't wanna wait all the way for six weeks, right? So we, we did four weeks and it works fairly well. We actually do four weeks now and it works well for us, right? Um, and so they were very receptive. Uh, we tried it um, and it worked really well uh, from a perspective of like, we were able to plan our work better. Um, shaping helped us really clarify uh, like the boundaries of the problems. So now Ryan kind of calls it framing and shaping. So we, we yeah. first frame the problem and put boundaries around like, what problem do we want to solve this much, that much, or whatever, it's like guardrails around the problem. And then we shape we shape it, meaning we go into the process of figuring out how are we going to solve it, right? We're not going too detailed. Sometimes we go detailed, depending on, you know, the unknown, like what unknowns we're trying to answer. But it's also, it's guardrails around the solution, right? And um, and that helped me. Uh, I think it was, I was also solving a personal problem where I was always kind of in the middle of the team making trade-off decisions because I feel like we didn't articulate that well, right? Like we mm -hmm. had a user 
story and it had like some acceptance criteria in it. And then I would chime in three days into the cycle and see that maybe the team is not thinking about this the way I was thinking about it, right? Like we just, it wasn't articulated in the way that ShapeUp kind of teaches you to articulate these problems as again, boundaries yeah. kind of. And so I was solving my own problem. I was like, I want to be able to articulate what problems we're solving and maybe put some boundaries on the solution. I don't want to be involved in the day-to-day, right? I, I have other teams to run. I have an organization to run and so on. And it worked really well. And so we started doing that. And we, you know, again, we had some struggles. We can talk about those week one, week two. I mean, sorry, cycle one, cycle two, and so on. But it got better, progressively better over time. Um, and then I don't remember the exact details, but um, obviously I, I had one-on-ones with my other, you know, product managers from other teams. And um, there were there were time and time and again, obviously, you talk about the problems that you're facing. And yeah. I would over a period of probably of a couple of months, just every time a problem came up, right? Um, you know, oh, the team didn't make the right trade off, right? Or something like that. Or again, we, you know, we're two weeks late on producing something and so on. I started introducing these concepts like appetite, you know, the, the trade off that you're making, the sort of the guardrails that you're setting and shaping and so on. So I, 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 I started introducing this eventually. Um, they were able to kind of get their head around it in the context of what they were experiencing. And they were willing to say, I remember, I think it actually like happened within like a week period where we just decided me and the other two product, you know, uh, managers that oversaw the other products, we were like, this makes total sense to us now. Let's go do it. Right. And we just, and that's yeah. going to happen overnight. Like they, they ran those teams and they introduced it to their teams and the following, you know, after the sprint was over, we started the new cycle and, you know, doing, doing shape up. Yeah. Got it. But I mean, given your role as, um, lead, uh, what was the exact title there? Uh, VP product engineering, right? Yes. Um, you, you did carry a lot of pull, uh, regardless of yes. the, the convincing, um, yeah, now at, I have trusted people that I work with. I fortunately, yeah. been, you know, I've been very fortunate to work with people that are really good and I trust a lot. So I would never approach it as like, yes, I could have again in my position said mm -hmm. this is what we're doing. I want people to really everything works better when people can put any, anything within the context of something they're struggling with. Right. Yes. It's like when I learn jobs is within the context of trying to grow a company. If if I would have just went to a jobs workshop and things were just going well, I don't think I would have received it in the same way. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's true. And I also if you um, what I always do in these episodes is I link this shaping in a nutshell video that Ryan has uh, for context. And I think in there he also makes a great point of starting from you know, this, the, if you observe these three problems, uh, shape up might be for you. Um, and it seems like you've taken kind of a similar route of introducing shape up by uh, showing the struggles or highlighting the struggles and how shape up fits. You know, like one of the things that we, I, we were doing sprint reviews all the time or cycle reviews, right. And, um, in a lot of companies, you would see a sprint review is just, you know, we finish these stories, right? Um, yeah. And let me demo you this story. But what I'm really looking for is like, what problem did we solve? Like, I want the larger outcome being demonstrated there, right? And so 
that was one of the sort of the the issues that we had at I feel like at Twaddle was the name of the company was that um you know we can go into every spring the team was moving fast they were producing a lot of work but it was hard to really align it with like look we took this chunky problem right we scoped it well enough right that we can fit it within our appetite we finished the work right and now we can actually demonstrate it in the context of like we solved a problem in this particular way right and yeah. so uh, it just it just made everything so my like a lot like you always talk about outcomes and product and then you yeah. so my my uh, really good friend Chris Speak you probably know Chris as well um, always I don't remember if him or Ryan that said that first but they always talk about like you take this description of a problem and the design and and how you think about it and then you put it through this scrum paper shredder right yeah. And so, and then you're like, break it into stories and everybody's working on these stories and eventually it comes together. And that's what we were trying to solve because like we, we I, I wanted the team to just go out and solve this particular problem constrained within the appetite. And, and so, so, yeah. Yeah. I, um, you've mentioned a couple of times how ShapeUp is designed in a way from first principles or how the at least those come through in in how it's communicated. How have you, and you've mentioned this to me before uh, when we were speaking about your experience now at Metadata, um, how did you use that to then scale shape up at a company where you did, I don't want to lean too heavily and you've made the point that this wasn't any part of you introducing shape up, um, but where you're not the, you know, the the head of the food chain. Yeah, but you're coming in um, and having to convince an organization, or not convince, but improve. Yeah. Um, so I was head of of sub organization. I wasn't obviously head of all of metadata product development, right? Um, so, but my approach was very similar, right? Um, it was um, within my organization. I think it works better like that if it grows kind of organically, right? Um, I had a few teams um, that uh, I just joined that we were building. Um, and some of these teams struggled, um, meaning I took over some teams. Sorry, we didn't build a new team. And some <laughs> of these teams um, struggled for a while, all right, producing the right outcomes and producing on time and so on. And so I took one team. Um, again, fortunately, I had a really fantastic product manager, <clears throat> Ian. Uh, he still runs those teams right now. Um, he really, uh, like, he, he grasped this because, again, I think he was struggling with um, being able to, you know, have his team be as productive as, as it could be with ShapeUp or some of these principles that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, I introduced it to him. And, and we were in a, in a place where, Look, it wasn't that the team was already in this fantastic state of flow and I didn't want to disrupt it. Like the team yeah. was in a place where we wanted to change something, right? And so we started with a small team. Again, it was a few people. Uh, it was easy to introduce these concepts. Um, and um, and yeah, we we actually, I wanted to pull the team out of like the, the standard um, SDLC pro. I mean, we still have to follow it for regulatory reasons and we do. Uh, but I also wanted the team to kind of do work in another tool. So we actually started using Basecamp. Uh, I still think Basecamp is a really good, good tool uh, for implementing. Obviously, they build that tool for themselves. And yeah. They, 
Uh, it's, it's just a really good tool for actually it, it, it's not great for like shaping and planning and and like brainstorming and so on but it's a great tool for actually executing the project yeah and so we you know we went to base camp and and again we we started shaping and there were growing pains again like you like usually you know you start shaping and you know what does that mean is it just narrative format like uh, every team is different. You know, some teams require more details in the shaping process. Some more mature teams that are very familiar with the domain require less, right? So it's 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 a lot of art, right? This isn't like a specification that you <laughs> get in a lot of other you know processes where it's like, here's how you write your acceptance criteria. You do this for every single story. Uh, <clears throat> it's really art. You have to know your yeah. team. And you have to kind of, you know, shape the work in the way that will resonate. With, like they will know what trade-offs they can make, what problems they're solving and what decisions and like, and how to kind of solve that problem, how to think about that problem, right? But it's very dependent on the domain, on the team, on how long the team's been together, how mature they are, right? And and it, and it changes over time, right? You can start off being kind of over-specifying things and then get get kind of a little bit more abstract as the team more matures. Do you remember the first exchange that you had with this product manager about ShapeUp? I think, yeah, I, I not really because we had so many exchanges, but I think one of the first exchanges, typically what I do, uh -huh. you know, I've introduced ShapeUp so many times that I've... Um, it's always like you, you just feel re re repetitive and it just gets tiring, right? Because it's like to say, it's mm -hmm. almost like I'm not great at, like I would, I, I love teachers and I have a lot of respect for teachers. And I think one of the issues I would have teaching is like, you do the same thing kind of every new people, mm -hmm. right? But it's the same material. So I, I've always like wanted something to like before, like I love talking about like the meat, the, the, like the details and debating some of, some of the principles and so on. But there's some basics, right? There's like some some kind of baseline ground level things that people need to know first. And I always wish there was like good material around it. And so I usually mm -hmm. would point them towards Ryan's book, right? It was it was yeah. it was I mean it was a great book. I wish there was something like more concise just to introduce them to some of these concepts without having to read the whole book. But that book is an easy read. So typically when I start off, I give them like a five, ten minute kind of like, hey. Look, the, there's a, another way to think about software. Um, you know, if you're late on projects like this, like you inverse, like the you, you talk about appetite versus like estimates and so on. So I give them a little bit of like a preamble of like why they should read the book and say, look, go read the book and let's talk about it in a couple of days. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but now Ryan released the video. Right. So at, at times I would just send people that video. And I think it was a more concise way to introduce people mm -hmm. like why somebody would even want to to spend time on this right yeah okay got it i i mean i i agree uh but the video now is a good good resource it's, it's like 20 minutes so it's easy enough to send somebody um yeah. let's talk about the let's pick apart the kind of the principles of shape up what are they to you and why are they so powerful yeah so um there are a few right um we like one of the ones that I always like to talk about um, when people say like, are we going to do four week cycles or six? Why not two? And like, you know, agile is smaller cycles. And I said, you know, to me, well, why, why, why are cycle times small? And so we start talking about this whole concept of 
the bets that you're taking, right? So it used to be in the waterfall world, you would take a huge bet. It was a six month, a one year risk, right? And and we talked about it a little earlier, right? Where, you know, in the software world, right? Uh, redoing something is somewhat cheap, um, much cheaper than the manufacturing world. And so you want to take smaller bets, right? And so, you know, and that was what Agile was about. You take smaller bets and you iterate over these bets. And, but I think in like in a lot of industry, just, just because something is good, more of it doesn't mean it's constantly getting linearly better, right? Um, I think at some point we went down to like, oh, well, from six months to four week sprints to two week sprints, some companies are doing one week sprints, right? Is they've, they've forgotten about the fact that we're taking a bet, right? And a bet is really where we're talking about some feature or some problem that we're solving and we're trying to solve that in an iterative way. And they just kind of broke work down into tasks devoid of its context, right? Yeah. And so now you can do it in these two-week cycles, right? Um, but you're completing a lot of work in two weeks, but rarely are you actually solving a problem. Like two weeks is in most cases, unless you're fixing a bug or doing some very small feature, it's just not enough time, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, you can complete a bunch of stories, uh, within an epic, and then you complete some more stories in another uh, sprint. Eventually, you feel you know the the epic is complete, right? Uh, and there are problems with that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but what what I talk about is look uh, really about bet. We're t when we talk about cycle times, we're talking about batch sizes. It's really about like appetite. It's about us saying we're willing to work in four week kind of. Um, uh, bets, right? Like we're willing yeah. to, we have a four week appetite to take a risk on something that even though we have a hunch and we might have a lot of data around it, we just don't really know until the market tells us, right? And so, so that's when we start. I mean, to me, that's a, like, if you understand the principles of iteration and, and batch sizes and so on, then we can talk about, it's not, it's no longer just like, well, why two weeks? Or like, because people feel like when you go from two to four weeks, you're just going to be working slower, but it's not. Right. Yeah. Like you're like they're not going to be able to see progress every two weeks. Right. Um, so that's one of the premise, like batch batch sizes. Right. Like let's let's actually talk about the 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 ideas of why batch sizes. You know why big bats are bad. You know in our world why smaller bats are better and so on. Um, and we get into like appetites over appetite over estimates. Mm -hmm. Right. That to me is always, you know, that's an easy thing to resonate with people. Uh, it's it's hard thing to adopt, but it's, it resonates with everybody. Because if you look at almost every project um, that does estimates, they're almost always perpetually late. They're, they're yeah. all, right? Um, when I got to this company, um, this was actually very eye-opening to me. They were doing estimates and they were like saying, we can do 50 story points in the cycle and 30 would get finished and just automatically the other 20 would just roll over to the next. Yeah. And it was just perpetually just roll over, roll over, roll over. People just stop paying attention to it because at the end of the cycle, you can just say, look, we did 30 points. Great. Fantastic. Let's clap. You know, um, yeah. but what did we actually achieve? You know? Yeah. And so we, when we talk about app, so appetite one way uh, for, for me, appetite is really about us. It's a two way thing. One is the business saying, look guys, um, we have all these other problems to solve. Uh, we are prioritizing this one, but it's only worth it to us to solve it right now if we can if if we can do it within four weeks or two weeks or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, you can do small batch projects and so on. Right. Uh, so one is that business angle, and the other one is um, 
the during the implementation, it forces trade-offs. To me, create the best creativity comes from introducing constraints, whether constraints exist naturally or you introduce artificial constraints. It makes yeah. people more creative. And it's a constraint that forces trade-offs. You no longer can say, I'm going to build some best version of something, which I don't even know what that means. There's a million best versions of those things. You actually immediately start constraining your optionality space, right? And, yeah. and so that's that. So we when we talk about appetite and estimates, it's not just like, oh, I hate estimates. Like, let's just do appetite because from a business perspective, I want you to work all night long to meet that. Commitment. Mm -hmm. That isn't what that's yeah. about. It's really about forcing trade-offs. Yeah. Right? You so, mentioned that. It, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, but you mentioned the the difficulty between theory and practice on, on appetites. Um, I'd love to hear kind of your war stories, how you've maybe burnt your hands on that. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, the hardest part about working within the, those constraints, people are not used to in most organizations. Um, they don't, they haven't trained their trade-off muscle at that. Like in a lot, on a lot of engineering teams, yeah. engineers don't actually have a lot of latitude to make decisions, right? They get, they get the latitude to figure out like, what library am I going to use or whatever else, but they don't actually get scope latitude, right? And yeah. so you have to start making actually solution, like larger solution trade-offs. And they haven't, like a lot of people just haven't built, they're more than capable. They just haven't built that muscle. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, mostly when we start working with appetite, even when the idea has resonated, um, things still like in the beginning few cycles might like you actually have to handhold on making decisions up front. You have to teach people how to um, like scope work. That's another thing that we'll talk about. That's another like why do we scope work. Is it just so like we can break work down and I can track it? No, it has nothing to do with it. Right. Um, and so we are, um, um, so, so let, let me try to figure out like how to, how to best introduce this. So typically what ends up happening is if somebody fails an appetite, it's because they are, um, not approaching, not answering the hardest questions first, right? Mm -hmm. They're not making enough trade-offs and enough decisions up front in the cycle, right? And, and it's easy to say that, right? But you have to actually build the muscle to do that. And you have to have some tools, some thinking tools in place to help you do that. And that's when we get into this next thing is about scoping and tasking, right? Why do we scope, right? Uh, again, it's not just breaking work down because project managers want to see how many tasks we have so we can figure out the percentage that we're completely. Has nothing. Mm -hmm. Scoping is really about thinking and dissecting the problem into slices, right? And uh, so we're dissecting problems into these orthog as as orthogonal as you can get slices, right? So you're trying to reduce yeah. interdependence. One is maybe two people can work on that in parallel, uh, but two is also so you can complete each one of them in isolation. Then you look at the scopes and then you can do some like interdependence stuff on them, right? To say like, which one is dependent on what other one, right? Then you can, in then you can look at them from an angle of like, which one is the riskiest one, right? And this yeah. is how you start prioritizing these scopes. And this is, this is really how you're kind of just like mapping out your, your like directions to your destination. That's what scoping is about. This is like you, um, I don't know if you've ever uh, listened to like Rich Hickey hammock driven development talks and so on. It's like, you know, it's almost like, like 
we, we don't think enough about the problem before we just jump in and start kind of solving it, right? This is a way to like dissect the problem, look at it from different dimensions. It doesn't take long, right? Like when people think about mm-hmm. it, it's like, well, I just want to start coding, right? But it's like, no, you take, you have a four week cycle. I'm asking you to take two weeks to dissect the problem and understand how you're going to approach it. And you're going to discover like, unknowns in that process. You're going to discover interdependencies. You're going to discover, you know, where the risks lie that will actually help you do a better job. So again, when we go into scoping, it's not like process for the sake of process, right? It's not, it's not about tracking, right? It's really about, it's about like, it's a thinking tool to me, right? Uh, A lot of times we like, you can scope in Basecamp, but we actually go scope on a whiteboard, right? And it's like, we create a bunch of tasks and then we do uh affinitization like ryan taught me this fantastic uh uh you know uh method of uh, called affinitization right which is you you kind of start just how do you start thinking about scopes well you list all these things that you think you might want to do and then you start kind of clustering them together without any labels at first see how they fit and those become your scope so there's some tools to do that you don't always Mm -hmm. have to reach for those tools right but again, it's a thinking tool. It's a problem-solving tool. It's not just a process tool. Yeah, yeah, and I think he did a he even did a did a mind the product talk on that. Um, this uh, scoping and kind of the brain dump and then dissecting it. Um, I can link that. Um, yeah, two of the, the tools notes. he kind of taught me is the affinization and interdependencies. And I think it's between like Ryan and Mast. I think Bob has used those tools for years and in, in other contexts and so on, right? But, um, yeah. you know, um, affinization is around creating groups of things that you can't foresee right away, right? And just kind of creating those scopes, those orthogonality, yeah. or orthogonal scopes, right? Uh, and then interdependence is about figuring out, like, it's really about trying to figure out sequencing, right? By figuring out what's dependent on, like, what, what the, if I do this thing first, will it help me do this other thing better, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, and those tools, I reach for those tools all the time, especially in the more complex projects. Yeah, you've mentioned the the change in nature of, of the work for an engineer working within ShapeUp, and that all of a sudden now they have this freedom, responsibility, pressure. You you know you can frame it either way of making making trade offs. Um, and a lot of people that I've talked to have relate to me that there's a spectrum of, of engineers they work with where some people do just prefer clear specifications and having a mission to execute on those. Um, how, how has your experience been with kind of really changing the role of an engineer at its core? Yeah. Um, it's mostly been good. I mean, look, let's be honest. Um, you know, there are more engineers with more, I don't even call it more experience, right? Um, with that feel more comfortable with optionality and making decisions, right? Somehow they've developed that muscle, whether they were at some smaller company where they had to wear multiple hats and whatever else. Um, and those typically, the transition for those is, almost immediate, right? Because mm-hmm. they've almost always been like earning for like to, to have that responsibility to solve problems in that way. Those are the people that usually actually approach first to, to win their hearts because I know yeah. 
right? They would love working in that way, right? They kind of almost implicitly do work in that way, even though they still go in and, you know, follow that process because it needs to happen, right? Um, and then there are, you know, there's a spectrum of other, there's engineers that are, they never work like that, right? Um, and, but they have, they have the ability to, I think everybody has the ability to work that way, but then there are some that are, that are open to it. Um, and it takes a few cycles, right? And some handholding, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, um, and so they, you know, it, it takes a couple cycles, some handholding, and they, it resonates with them and they become really good at it, right? And, uh, and it helps them grow as an engineer, right? Not just like, mm -hmm. you know, in years of experience, but actually in like solving problems right in novel ways um and then there are people i mean i have had the experience which for some reason it just doesn't resonate and those people just don't fit into that culture anymore right like and sometimes you know we have to part ways it happens rarely right and and i wouldn't even say it's the people right it might be me right that i didn't yeah. take time to w whatever happens in that process there are some people that just it just doesn't they just don't get it or it doesn't resonate or I'm doing a bad time, you know, bad job exp explaining it and so on. It just doesn't resonate. Right. But by that time we're working in that way. So we, you know, if we're hiring new people, we also hire them to make sure that they can work within that, that kind of, you know, new, new method and, and this, in this kind of culture that we've, we've created around problem solving. Right. Um, but so again, to your point, it, it happens uh, where some people, it just doesn't resonate with them for whatever reason. And they do prefer to just, you know, I just want a set of acceptance criteria and leave me alone. Yeah. Um, but at that, by that, by that time, that isn't the way we work. Right. And it's just a bad fit. Yeah. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the conversation. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and to let you know about the Shapers and Builders job board. On shapers.builders, yes, that's the domain, you'll find jobs in software development, design, product management, and other roles at companies that work with ShapeUp. Many of these roles are remote, and teams who use ShapeUp generally run at a more sustainable, healthy, and meaningful pace than the hamster wheel of two-week sprints. So if you're looking for a job in tech or trying to find great people, head over to the Shapers and Builders job board at shapers.builders. Now let's turn back to the conversation. What were what were some of the the headwinds, the the concerns that you had to navigate when introducing ShapeUp? What were the biggest uh yeah. Yeah, points of mean, opposition. Yeah, I mean, more so probably now at a larger company, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, some of it is political, right? Um, there's somebody in the organization that has done a great job uh, putting together tools, resources, and SDLC around the current process, right? And there's this natural pushback of like, no, like what, this is why I don't always approach it like, yeah, we're just going to stop doing scrum. We're going to stop doing shape up as opposed to like, we're just going to gradually start introducing some of these concepts into the process. Right. So when, and even though we do this gradually, eventually, you know, people hear about it and they start, mm -hmm. you know, and people hear about like this team is doing something different, like, you know, and is, is it a threat to this process that we have? Mm -hmm. And 
it's never a threat because it's not about my process versus your process. It's about us working better. It's about us um, bringing more value to the customer faster, uh, you know, and, 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 and bringing more value to the customer as well as bringing more value to the organization that can produce that value for the customer because we can iterate faster and, we, you know, and so on. So it's really about that. But there is there's politics. Right. And so and, and at times people get scared off by change. Right. This thing has been yeah. in place for 10 years. It works. Uh, why are we changing tools that, that that requires a lot of approvals that requires, you know, a lot of changes to the to the process? They so so typically in those scenarios, um, there are groups that are disconnected from um, and it's not their fault. It's just the organizational setup. They're disconnected from producing outcomes. Right. So mm -hmm. if you think about it, in a lot of organizations, people responsible for the process they are responsible for they've gotten into a state of flow for producing a lot of output right and that's what they're measured on right like we we a lot of companies you know on, on their whatever weekly bi-weekly calls they go over you know the velocity of teams mm -hmm. like that's a measurement of i don't know what value it definitely isn't right um but they've got like they have a system in place and it produces a lot of that output but when you're aligned around out, outcomes and those outcomes are business outcomes, like we actually need to, like we're a for-profit business, we need to create value for our customers so they pay for it. Um, then you start wanting to change the process to align them more with that. You're more, you're just more open to like, if it's not working, right? You're more yeah. open to changing that process, right? Whatever it takes to produce those outcomes. Because, because you know, the, those people are graded based on, those outcomes, right? There's there's incentive yeah. to 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 producing those outcomes, but there are in the large company you create these. Think about these these siloed organization that are that are so far away from the actual business outcomes. I mean, this isn't even about this part. Like, think about my one of my favorite examples is like think about a I don't know security organization, right? Cybersecurity within or within a company, right? Um, if you don't align that organization with business outcomes, right? What you end up doing is they are always kind of like the gatekeeper of everything, and they have very little incentive of changing that process. You, they, they're the only yeah. incentive is to keep adding things to make it harder and harder to release software, right? Because because they get their ass kicked when a cybersecurity incident happens. But they get very little incentive or reward if the company has just, you know, built another feature or product and it up its, you know, revenue by twenty percent, right? Yeah. Uh, so they typically build. So that happens in a lot. Like the, the larger the organization gets, somebody's responsible for the process, and that process becomes like an end of itself to producing output, right? Uh, yeah. And and that so that becomes the hardest thing because then then you know somebody on the product side is trying to change the process because they want to align it with outcomes and and there there's just politics in play. Yeah, and you mentioned that one way around that, if I understood you correctly, is kind of masking it as the same thing but different un, until you can't anymore. Did I kind of catch that right? I mean, the best way to change this is to actually restructure the organization, right? Align yeah. everybody around the same goals, which is business outcomes, right? And if you do that, that will naturally make people more open to to improving the process. Again, this isn't about process A versus process B. This is just about better iterative product development.
right? Yeah. Everybody. So that's the, but obviously, you know, I, you know, we, we're not going to change our organizational structure overnight. Uh, so the yeah. best way I found it is, yeah, you're absolutely right. I just, we just make our teams better by introducing these principles, right? So some teams are running completely on ShapeUp. Some teams might still be doing parts of Scrum, but they've introduced this idea of scoping and tasking, right? Or this idea of, of shaping something and, and using some of the, some, some of the concepts from like framing and shaping to, to just improve what the teams are getting so they can make these trade-offs, even though still they might be breaking it into stories and, you know, um, estimating them and so on. It's not yeah. ideal, but it's better than it was before. Yeah. Um, one of the, I think one of the critiques though that ShapeUp gets is because the cycle length, the batch size is bigger. Uh, and Ryan sent me this uh, podcast that Kent Beck was doing where he was voicing concerns of the software industry moving back towards a waterfall kind right. of uh, mindset. What what was what, what's your response in that um, case? Like, is shape up mini waterfalls? Is it back to that or? I don't think so. Not even close. I mean, we it's it's back to these you know principles that we talked about before. Like you know, um, the baths that you want you kind of want to take right. Like to say that moving from a two week cycle to a four or six week cycle. Um, is going back to waterfall. I mean, maybe Kent was talking about something else and not necessarily shape up, and he might be seeing some patterns. But in, I don't, I don't think that's the case, right? You're increasing. So again, as as I said, just because something small is good doesn't mean that you can infinitely make it smaller and smaller and smaller and still, and, and it'll still be like linearly better every single time, right? Like it's not, right? Um, it's almost like a bell shaped curve of like you know, there's like yeah. You know, the on one side, it's you're talking about a six month bad, bad. By the way, it might be good for some businesses. It depends on what the business is. Like in in the hardware space, you might have to have longer cycles, right? Uh, just because you can't do things in 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 one week, right? So, but on one side, you have these huge bats, right? That's just too risky, right? And on the other side, yeah. you have put all the work through a paper shredder, and it no longer resembles the problem that you're trying to solve, right? And that's the when you get into like the one or two week cycles. Uh, and look, some companies can do that. Again, it's very dependent on the domain, on the content. My point is to just think through that. Like what pro what size problems are we, what size bets are we willing to take, right? To iterate on. Yeah. And so, but but here's my problem. But, but you do that in the context of like making sure that the problem you're trying to solve, right? You're scoping it down, but the problem, like, and, and maybe you're biting off a slice of that problem, but it still stays this together. So the problem with putting things through a paper shredder, right, is that somebody works on a story that's part of the larger, you know, um, uh, content, like lar larger problem that you're trying to, uh, an epic, right? Yeah. And they are making decisions on how to solve this. The problem is, is they're not doing it in the context of all the other stories, yeah. right? So you might make a decision here, then when you, and this happens by the way, all the time, then you're working on another story in another sprint, right? To complete this epic. And you realize that you made a bad decision here. So yeah. now you have to go back and redo this, right? So it's just, it just creates more work. And what creating bigger batch sizes, right? And this again, it's, 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 it's forget about the time for it. It's just about like, what's the appetite, right? to 
for us to invest in solving this problem to really just go to market and figure out if we're moving in the right direction, right? And keep that together, right? So the team needs to see that all within the context of the problem we're trying to solve. So when they're scoping, when they're making decisions, when they're 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 seeing the whole forest and not just like they're not just climbing one tree and then realizing there's like a million other trees and they're you know different configure whatever like you're actually you can see you can you can zoom in on each task while you're doing it but on a daily basis you're still stepping out you're still seeing the force right and you're still making decisions in the context of that yeah i think that's the biggest difference um you're, you're totally right where um also that then relates to carryover you know you you just keep going keep going keep going on the same problem whereas with shape up you while you're looking at the full thing, you, you know, you also make sure that you stop and you know when you've done the full thing. Yeah. Yeah. There is a lot of, in the Scrum world, what, one thing I'm seeing is there's a lot of rework happening. I mean, besides not meeting time commitments and estimates are always wrong. So there's just a lot of rework, right? Because again, one story, I mean, look, there are some companies that aren't solving big problems, right? They, they, maybe it's a stable product and everything is just, you know, a two day task, right? And in that context, yeah. like, hey, Scrum works just fine, right? Actually, Ryan and I, um, he was visiting a few weeks ago and we talked about, um, these three different, and every team will have that, right? There, there's three different categories of, um, uh, kind of work on a team, right? Um, one is we're solving a problem, right? It's a new thing. It's a new feature. It's like we're solving a juicy problem that we want to shape. We want to put an appetite on and so on. Yeah. Then there is like the small batch work. These are all the little things, bug fixes, tweaking something to make it better, right? Um, that doesn't require, like you can you can do that just fine using Scrum. Right. Uh, we still do within the context of shape up in terms of like we batch these things together into a cycle and so on. So you can do that kind of in in whether it's Scrum or, or shape up, it works just fine. And then uh, there's this third category, which is urgent work. Right. So there's like small, trivial, non-important work. Right. Where you kind of batch together at some point in time. Hopefully, most of your time is sol- is spent solving nice problems. Right. Yeah. Um, then exactly. you have the small work that you're doing. But then there's the urgent work, right? That is the work that like comes in. You have to at times drop things to do, right? At times, maybe you don't have to drop things today, but you have to do it pretty urgently within the next week or two or something like that. Um, that works. Actually, that work actually fits really well within the Scrum world, right? Like this yeah. is it's it's small work. I mean, small doesn't mean like maybe it's a bug that'll take you three weeks to fix. I, I don't know. But my point is like that, like the Scrum or the Kanban process is just fine for managing that work, right? So I'm actually experimenting right now with kind of um, uh, these two methods, right? Where the sm- the small trivial work and the project work is done within the context of um, shape up cycles, right? Mm-hmm. And then we still use uh, like Jira or just the regular, I mean, Jira is just a tool, but we still kind of go back to like, using Kanban or, or, or Scrum within the context of all the other things that come in that we just have to respond to. And the, yeah. the, uh, I think the art here is, um, uh, or the key here is really to for capacity planning, right? And the team, mm-hmm. right? So you don't want, obviously, the team that's solving problems for us and trying to make progress on the product being pulled into these urgent tasks all the time, right? So we plan the small stuff, right? So those aren't interrupting the teams working on 
you know, the, 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 the problem, the larger problems that we're trying to solve, but we also reserve some capacity, right. For the urgent. Right. And again, yeah. depending on the team, the maturity of the, of the product, how many bugs there are, how many urgent issues come up, it's, it, it, you know, it all depends, but it, it was just really eye opening to break that work down because in many cases yeah. when I, we were implementing shape up, people would be like, well, how do we manage, uh, like the things that just come in, we have to get done. Right. Never really thought about it. Right. Until like Ryan and I started talking about it and, mm -hmm. uh, and, but it makes sense. And, but. What you don't want to do, right, is in, in the world that most people live in, in the scrum world, is like urgent work is managed very similarly to yeah. project work, right? Where it's just another ticket that you just say, hey, we're doing this. Here's a bunch of stories we're doing in the cycle. Urgent work comes in. You just drag it to the beginning. <laughs> like it's, it's, yeah. kind of, it, 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 it's, it's the same. I actually think separating those processes makes more sense because then you have to think about capacity planning in a different way. And you actually have to yeah. then. And capacity planning, if you do it right, will create focus for and that's what you want. You want people focused on solving problems and making progress and taking the taking the product forward, right? And 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 sure, you want to absolutely reserve capacity for the urgent things. But but I think again, separating the two create like explicitly makes you think about capacity planning. Yeah, definitely. Uh definitely. We we are coming up a bit on time, and I we you know I could spend two more hours, uh, <laughs> yeah. kind of getting your your take and your experience on these things. But um, I do want to uh, understand now that you know you you have I don't think we've put a number to this, but you have an un unbelievably huge product and engineering org at metadata, right? I, I think you mentioned previously to me it's like a thousand engineers in total. Roundabout? Yeah, uh, so metadata total, I don't remember, two and a half thousand people or something like that. And yeah. It's a pretty large organization. Uh, I don't think it's a thousand. I, I think our product team, if you look at all the product team, and that includes, you know, QA, engineering, and so on. Is probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. Um, Got it. Within, within uh, our organization where I, I work, which is our data platform uh, called Data Fabric, it's our data platform. It's about 150 people or something like that there, right? Um, but it is, it's, it's, it's at a completely, like, even if we say there's 500 or 600 engineers doing the work, um, it's at a completely different scale that I've ever worked, right? Like it's, it's bringing yeah. its own challenges, right? Changing a process isn't just like, let's have an all hands and we'll start next week. Right. It, 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 it is much more challenging. Yeah. That's what, that's what I was going to ask you about is where do you stand? How far have you rolled out shape up? Do you have any ambition to go beyond that or just. <laughs> Yeah, talk about that for a second. Yeah, so the company has again. There's pockets of shape up all through the company, right? Um, I mean, within my group, every 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 team is doing shape up now, right? Uh, and as I I recently um, took over a couple more teams, uh, and those were immediately transitioned to shape up, right? Uh, because it works. Like people actually see us producing outcomes, right? Um, and, um, and, and people are paying attention because there are all these other struggles on these other teams, right? But again, when you get into like, okay, well, it seems to work here, right? We are struggling. I think like the, you know, if you look at jobs, I'm going to mention jobs, like the forces of progress, right? Of like somebody making a switch. I think there's the, that inertia and anxiety is still so mm -hmm. high because for political reasons, for 
you know, just the amount of work that would have to go into, like, if we were to change our whole company's SDLC, right? Like, it's, it's, yeah. it's a lot. So there's still like this, these overpowering forces that I'm still trying to figure out how to do. Maybe at some point, the whole metadata, the SDLC is going to be based on Shapeup. It isn't yet. But there are these pockets. So one of the other things is... Um, uh, one of my good friends, Charlie Blazer, um, just joined and we kind of hired him to run uh, another part of the organization that deals with uh, like sensors and so on. So it's a, it's a separate organization's uh, organization. And he he was one of the product directors uh, that I worked with before that implemented that at Twiddle. And so he brought a lot of that knowledge there. And so mm-hmm. he's now starting to to kind of infiltrate that in, into that other yeah. organization. So some some of those teams are starting to use some of these principles. Um, and um, yeah, so it's there are these pockets. Also, the other one is um, our design organization um, is using some of these. So there were two, um, two of the directors of design actually went to Ryan's uh, workshop uh, that he just recently had, right? Um, and when they came back, they're starting to use, again, they are not um our design works a little differently but they they um they're starting to use so it's not like they work on you know like four week cycles within the team yeah. like I, I wish at some point maybe we can get in into that mode right um but they're starting to use some of those kind of principles that we talked about right uh within like like appetite for some of the projects that they might be working on in isolation of the team because they're designing something right um they're definitely trying to shape more work right and talk about like trade-offs and so on so so there's again you know i, I wouldn't say like the whole company is on shape up just yet um but yeah. there are those pockets and they're getting larger Right. There it's not mm-hmm. as if we're just like two teams are running shape up. They've been doing it for two years, but it's like this rogue team, right? Like it's um it's it's get it it's 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 definitely expanding. Have you developed any standardized material now when like a team is like, Hey, we want to try shape up, you're like, I'm gonna send over our not agile coach, but <laughs> our shape up coach. Um, no, so there are more people that can now do the training uh internally, right? It used to be just like me and I had to join every yeah. meeting and so on. Uh I have some really good people that have done that for a while now that can do that. I I think the the key here, besides the initial introduction and go read the book and we'll do a session and I'll explain some of these principles and so on, is let's actually do the work. Like I want people to experience that within the context of doing the project. Yeah. And the worst thing you can do there is to just say, go read the book. Here's a, you know, a project package or it used to be called a pitch. Right. And like, uh, you know, I'll check in on you in a week and in four weeks, I'm expecting this to be done. Right. Like that's mm-hmm. just not fair. So typically there's a lot of handholding in the beginning. Right. And handholding because it's like it's it's learning. Right. Like it's almost like you have like this teacher taking you through that first one or two cycles. And so usually what we would do, I used to do that. Now there's more people that can do that. Um, so we kick off the first cycle, right? And there's some cycle kickoff call that we we go over the the pitch, right? Uh, people look through it, they ask questions, right? But they're still not sure they've never worked like this before. There's a lot of anxiety. The next thing yeah. we do is as opposed to just sending them off and be like, go scope your tasks, you know, read the book and how to do it. We actually do an interactive session. Right. We'll mm-hmm. open Basecamp. We'll open Miro. Uh, we'll we'll do some of these affinitization, you know, exercises. We'll try to scope that work, right? And then 
uh, you know, we'll put it in Basecamp. And then I'll go in on a, almost a daily basis in the beginning to make sure that they're tracking things on the hill chart properly. They're, they're, they're creating more tasks. Like initially the tasks are kind of imagine tasks and then you're discovering more tasks. And this really blueprint of how you're solving this problem should be changing, especially in the first part of the cycle, almost constantly, right? Because you're not yeah. doing like you've imagined all these things that you need to do. You've planned it, but now the reality set in and you started you know, you thought you can use this library and you couldn't. So there should be more things. So, so you just want to see progress, right? Yeah. Um, and so this leads me to like, just to say one other like big principle I always talk about is like this, this concept of tracking work using hill charts, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, and like, so we, we start talking about that, like how work actually, like the, the principle behind it is how work actually happens. That's a reflection of real work, like estimates are not, but real work happens when you um again you you go in you think you know something you start discovering things there are difficulties so you're discovering things you're figuring things out right and then you're actually just polishing things up putting the final touches on it and finishing this right and so one of the important things we we talk about is um there's two reasons we track this work um one is for me and for other leaders on the team so we know, right, we don't want to micromanage. We don't want to have meetings every day, but we want to have an ability to look into a project and get some grasp of whether it's go it's still on the right track, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and know when to step in, right? Hey, this doesn't look like, it looks like you're struggling here. Can I help, right? Yeah. Um, and so one is for us. But even more importantly, I always teach this, it's for engineers, and they'll say like, why? Yeah, we don't need to try. Yeah, you do. Because if you scope and you task it, what you end up doing every day, if you're, if you get into this habit of like, like going in and, and putting things on the hill chart on a daily basis, looking at your scopes and so on, this is your way to get out of the, every engineer, every day, you're in a rabbit hole, right? You start working on something, you're deep into it. You don't see the forest, right? Yeah. So this is your daily opportunity to step out and say, holy crap, I've spent all day on this. And that's like, like, this is not even important in the context of all these other things. It's a way to readjust, right? Mm -hmm. It's a way to like, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, again, a way to step out, zoom out for a minute and see, are, am I working on the most important thing? Am I working on the hard, like, uh, am I asking and solving the right question or like, and answering the right questions, right? Um, so I teach that as a tool that they use. It's no longer... Please do it because the manager is going to ask you the status on a daily basis. Yeah. I actually care less about that and more about them using it as a, as a problem solving tool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, that resonates a lot. I, what, if, you, if you're looking back now, um, it sounds like you've had great success in implementing ShapeUp twice. Is there anything you've done differently or what are the learnings that you would, you know, give to somebody who's interested in, in trying shape up? I mean, one of the, and I think this, this is what I just actually talked about. Um, one of the number one learnings uh, for me, especially in this large organization, where there's a wider spectrum of skills and, and people and their experiences and so on, is this idea of kind of handholding in the first mm -hmm in the first cycle or two. 
look, it's not, it's not like you're going to like go read the book, shape a perfect project. And it's just going to go well in the first week. Yeah. That happened in my previous company because it was smaller. I had a tighter group of people that I was like more intimately involved with. So on. like it was, it was different, right? In a larger organization, again, there's a spectrum of skills, there's a spectrum of experiences, attitudes, you know, and so on. Like you have to, you have to hand, it's going to be hard, right? Cause like you wish partly why you're doing this is so you can like give more latitude to the team so you can step away and you can yeah. think about like, but that's not going to happen the first couple cycles. Like you, the team has to get into the state of flow. They have to learn all of these things in the context of doing them and you have to guide them through doing it. Right? Yeah. That's probably, I, I wouldn't even say like, by the way, like I, I wouldn't say that's, not true for anything else that you're doing. I mean, like that's probably besides, you know, the, an industry and money. Like that's why in like the scrum world, there's like scrum coaches and so on. Right. Because, you know, you can teach the method in a classroom all you want, but eventually you have to learn it in the context of actually doing the work and you have to get yeah. into like the, 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 the state of flow. Right. And so that's yeah. been big for me. Cause I, I talked to um, my buddy, uh, two of my friends, uh, Chris and Justin at Autobooks uh, like a couple of weeks yeah. ago, and we were we were um, talking about some of the their struggles with that, right? And that's one of the big things that we kind of agreed on is that more hand holding in that upfront process, more guiding them through these exercises of scoping and and I, I think the main thing is like scoping and tracking on the hill chart again not tracking for the sake of tracking tracking for the sake of that it helps you know when you need to make different trade-offs right yeah it makes you like look at the full spectrum of tasks and scopes and and the time that you have left and and the and the issues that you run in and like and almost pivot on a daily basis right like am i yeah. am i working am i thinking about this correctly am i working on this correctly i think that's been my biggest learning in this organization because again i was able to be more hands-off in, in my in my previous role right it's like yeah people that yeah. instantly understood it uh, they they were engineers and product people and and they kind of ran on their own it was less hand holding where here it's quite a bit more so this is i would kind of uh, categorize this as a as a watch out to maybe people who are thinking about implementing shape up and yearning for this you know, space for themselves, and then it's not happening. And the first few cycles, as you mentioned, might actually be more work than what you're used to. Yeah. Um, where you're saying, you know, what I hear a lot is, we have all of these rituals, there's this huge overhead, I'm we just kicked off something, now I'm having to plan the next thing. And, um, and that's not going to happen immediately to get this freedom with shape up. Yeah. Unless you have somebody else that can help guide that. But in most cases, like when I came in here, I was the only one that kind of had, you know, like new shape up well enough and those tools and so on. So I had to be more involved. Now I don't, right? Like I have great, fantastic yeah. folks and, and good, like senior engineering leads that know how to, how to do that so they can step in. Um, do you ever, do you see something like an agile coach, uh, a certification uh, on the horizon for, for something like Shape Up? I don't know. I hope not. I hope that's like the beginning of the end of Shape Up. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it makes sense, right? Like it, it totally makes sense to have somebody in an organization. It's almost like an enabler, right? As you're transitioning to this new way of doing to come in and, and help. I, I wouldn't 
like, I hope there's not an industry around it, right? I hope it's more yeah. of like a natural thing that a company does, right? That creates this enablement role that will go as you transition different teams to different ways of working, they can step in and work with that team for yeah. a few cycles to get them into, into that flow of things, right? Yeah. Um, one other thing uh, is that, you know, I learned is, um, and I did that, learned some of it at Twaddle, but larger scale here is again, don't try to come in and, you know, like, don't think that the only way you can use shape up in these principles is like if the whole company just switches to shape up, like you have to go in and at the executive level, convince everybody to rewrite everything about your process. Right. I would, I would argue that it's actually best to, even if you could do that, it's best to start off with one or two teams, get some wins under your belt, develop a process. It's probably going to be, there's probably going to be variations at every company. Right. Yeah. Um, Everything, you know, it, it depends on the team again, the, the domain and so on. There are going to be variations. Work out a, a, a good process and then kind of organically grow that. Right. That's, that's my, you know, one, one of my learnings and one of my recommendations for people is not to just go in and basically it's, you know, zero or 100. Right. Like that's, yeah, shouldn't be the case. And then I just kind of recap uh, what you mentioned is then come in in a principled way and not with this dogmatic yes. book in hand. Yes. Try to stay away from, because when you start talking about process switching, it, yeah. you run into politics, right? You run into, yeah. into, you know, it's partly politics. It's partly like just people thinking like, what does it take to, you know, to change the process, approach it more from like, again, like, let's go back to the basics. Like we are trying to, here's the struggles that we're having and here's how we can solve them and then take them back to like the, the you know, everything can kind of go back to like, how do we iterate better over product, right? Over outcomes, right? Yeah. We, we, we don't know what we don't know. Uh, the only way to do that is iterate. I think Ryan says this uh, all the time. He's like, iterating is releasing, right? You would be amazed yeah. how many companies are, like think they're iterating and doing you know they're doing two week sprints but they're not really iterating right it's just you know in two weeks we've the code is tested and like it's great now let's jump it to the other we'll release on a quarterly basis well like yeah then why are you even doing two week sprints like just do quarterly sprints right <laughs> like what what, yeah. what is the purpose of that the whole point of iteration again is testing this out in the marketplace because you don't know if you did the right thing you don't know if you need to augmented in some way or not. And the only way you're going to know is if, when you get that feedback from the, from your customers. Yeah. Thank you so much. We are really coming up on time now. Um, if you have a lot of experience on this, um, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to, to do that? Yeah. So I have a website and then there's a link. I have a newsletter that I, Hopefully at one point it'll be more active than it is now, but um, you can just go to iliasterin.com and there's like a description of me there as well as some of the links to my, my blog and my newsletter and so on. So, and, and my contact information. Great. I'll make sure to include that in the show notes. Uh, any, any last words, anything I, we missed? No, this has been great, man. This is, this is awesome. I mean, I, I hope we can, as I learn more about rolling this out in the larger organization, uh, and I mean, I'm not the only one doing it. There's a slew of people all over the world trying to, you know, implement and adapt, shape up. Like, I hope we can, you know, maybe at one point have another call and, <laughs> and I can share you some of the things and maybe contradict some of the things that I've said <laughs> during, this, during this meeting. Yeah. 
I'd love that. Uh, I'd love that. Thank you so much. Um, it's been really a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ilya. I certainly did. If you like this show, please leave us a favorable review on your podcast platform of choice. And to find jobs at companies that work with ShapeUp, like Metadata, remember to check out our job board at shapers.builders. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a great day.